Okay, I'd like to welcome you for the uh, lunchtime talk here on um, Monday. Uh, our speaker today is T.B. Paul, who I've known for about 300 years. Uh, he was a graduate student at UCLA and then uh, various other places and now settled pretty much at, um, at least for the time being, at McGill, where he is the uh, McGill chair or something, right, of uh, national security policy. Anyway, um, since Randy Schroeder was going to show up, he decided he'd talk about balancing. Um, and the, the official title of the talk is Balancing Under Near Unipolarity, America Power and the New Balance of Power Dynamics. TV. Let me thank you, John, uh, personally, because you're taking such good care of me, which... Oops, turn up something here. Yes. Um, I want to make sure it's on. I, I think I pressed something. <laughs> uh, it's very nice, for a, especially for a senior scholar, to take care of a junior guy or a middle-level guy like me. Which is, uh, I, I mean, Sandra has been a great host, too. So. Let me um, talk a little bit about this uh, book just came out from print, um, Stanford University Press. Uh, it's titled Balance of Power, a Theory and Practice in the 21st Century. Um, Co-edited by myself and uh, Jim Wirtz and Misha Fortman. And there are quite a few chapters in it that sort of build upon the theme that um, I'm going to talk about. Um, actually, I'm uh, using a lot of my introductory chapter uh, from this book, but I developed uh, some of the concepts a little bit more. And it's going to come out uh, in the International Security Journal in the summer issue, same title, so you will get a little bit more uh, out of that if you subscribe to the journal or get a chance to read it. Um, as people who know a little bit about my works, so I'm more interested in puzzles than, than paradigms, so I've been uh, looking at questions and trying to say that uh, for this puzzle, uh, this explanation is better than something else, and trying to move away from the, uh, the, the interest in paradigms per se, although I am interested in paradigms as well. Um, there is a growing body of literature in international relations that contend that uh, balance of power has become uh, a historical relic. The theory is no longer valid. Uh, eligible major powers are abandoning balance of power strategies, uh, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. Um, simultaneously, the U.S. has been increasing its uh, military capability. Defense budget is uh, something like over 50% of the world's uh, total military spending. Uh, R&D spending uh, in 2003 and four, th 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 2003, it was something like 60 billion, which was about 50% uh, of the world's, uh, or 60% of the world's total. Uh, there is uh, considerable uh, activism of the United States in many parts of the world in terms of uh, its uh, alliances, um, bases, creation of uh, also particular weapon systems that, have, uh, that can be used for long-range um, uh, offensive purposes. So the U.S. has um, a tremendous comprehensive lead in uh, military technology, industrial base, organization, strategic lift capabilities, personnel, quality, and training, etc. Despite the increase in American capabilities, 
uh, eligible states such as China or Russia or um, Germany uh, to some extent and India also to some extent have not increased the defense spending dramatically, although China is slowly increasing and uh, India is also increasing. Most of it is in relation to the regional arms races uh, taking place. China, of course, is Taiwan is a big deal in that uh, context. Um, there is um, the issue of the um, national missile defense and theater missile defense systems the U.S. is developing, um, which until now has not been, uh, have not been that effective, but if they become effective, the whole nuclear deterrence system that um, the other great powers use will be probably less effective, although I think there will still be uh, some benefit of keeping them. So the U.S. not only wields uh, tremendous power capabilities, um, it has been pursuing unilateralist strategies um, and also prevent even uh, preemptive attacks or, or part of its doctrine now calls for certain type of uh, uh, against uh, regional challengers using preventive and uh, preemptive military action. Now what explains this absence or near absence of balancing vis-a-vis -vis the United States? I look at uh, some of the existing explanations, um, and some of them are actually in this book uh, itself, which I mentioned. Um, there is um, quite a bit, uh, there are quite a bit of explanations, but I'll look at at least two or three. The one that uh, uh, people use a lot is, there is nobody with sufficient capability to balance the United States. The other one is the liberal argument that um, um, the United States is a liberal hegemony, a liberal democratic political system, uh, therefore uh, it is not uh, going to attract uh, the kind of balancing that uh, non-liberal states used to attract. Woolworth, uh, for instance, argues that um, eligible states such as China or Russia uh, single-handedly or unison cannot uh, balance America because they just don't have the capability uh, and they cannot find the allies in that pursuit. John Eikenbury argues that the constitutional character of the United States uh, in its uh, power relationship with its uh, allies, the ability of allies to penetrate American institutions, and international institutions that Washington have to create all offer uh, returns to participants. Therefore, mm, other states don't have the incentive to balance the United States. Economic liberals, it is clearly economic independence and uh, globalization that have prevented states from pursuing balance of power politics. Uh, all major powers, including China, especially China, are heavily interlinked with the United States today in terms of trade, investment, commercial flows, uh, etc. Now, there are some problems with these arguments. That's where uh, I find uh, at least the need to go beyond these uh, explanations that people have come up with. First of all, the liberal argument, there is assumption that economics is more important than security uh, or military status, that uh, great powers simply don't care anymore of uh, power as much as they used to. Wealth acquisition is more important. I mean, that argument uh, has to be uh, tested, of course, because great power status comes first with uh, military status and economics is certainly important, but increasingly more important, but it's not clear whether that's the only thing they really care about. I mean, just look at the way the Chinese are uh, campaigning against Japan today, which shows that there are more emotions there rather than economics in that uh, context. 
the argument that the, there is an absence of non-liberal states capable of uh, um, <coughs> balancing against the United States, I don't find that convincing because it's precisely because a single state cannot match the capabilities of the powerful actor that they have to form coalitions. The weaker states form coalitions because they cannot uh, single-handedly form uh, balancing uh, or achieve balance of power. Logically, potential balancers are too strong. They do not need to form coalitions. Uh, so there is that logical problem. And I don't think if China and Russia want to balance the United States, uh, that won't be a very weak coalition. It will be a pretty powerful coalition, and in fact, it might even attract some sympathizers from different parts of the world. Then, of course, the realist argument that I'm repeating this, I, I would think most of you are familiar with these uh, realist arguments, etc., but clearly to place my argument in the context would be useful to go over some of this, so it may sound a little uh, rep repetitive for those who are uh, up on the subject. Um, the realist argument is that the U.S. will be balanced, and what we are seeing is a historical intergenome that um, once you have a coalition or a powerful state emerges, the inevitable process of balancing will occur. Now, there is a problem with that argument, which is there is an indeterminacy uh, with respect to the timing of the arrival of the countervailing power against the hegemon. And Another problem, as Paul Schroeder and others have talked about, secondary states have adopted a number of strategies, such as buck passing, transcending, free riding, etc., when they face with a rising or a threatening power. And there is no clear indication that balancing is automatic. And I'm on the side of manual balances to that, that extent uh, to argue that it is bound to happen. I think the problem with that is there are a lot of other possibilities out there. It's not just balance of power is the only thing, but balancing is not the only thing that is likely to happen. Um, there is also this argument coming out of the structural perspective that the U.S. will eventually decline. Therefore, no need to worry about it. I guess that may be part of the other great powers' calculations, but uh, there is a problem with that argument also because most of the previous great powers and empires declined following long periods of war with other imperial powers. So war was the source of change in the international system. Now, if you look at, there is, uh, I'm trusting John Miller's argument about the whole absence of war to, to argue that there is clearly no evidence that there's going to be a major power war anytime soon, and therefore, War as a system-changing mechanism is not happening, and that would mean the U.S. could stay on for longer than people think in terms of its power capability. I think that is a very uh, important aspect which people have ignored in the discourse about this automatic decline of the United States. I think decline will happen, but it doesn't mean that even at a, at a decline state of affairs, U.S. could still be the dominant military power of the world. I go into the axioms of balance of power theory quite a bit, uh, an anarchic system, very much a realist theory, if you look at the hard, uh, kind of theory. Uh, states seek to survive as independent uh, units. Power competition is a fact of life. Um, hegemony is pursued by one or uh, other power. When such a state assumes or trying to get too much power, there is... Uh, that the defensive coalitions are uh, bound, to, bound to happen.
Now, I would term the realist balancing strategy relying on arms build-up and alliance formation as hard balancing, um, clearly because uh, these two are the historical uh, strategies or, or techniques by which states engage in balance of power politics. Now, in general, two conditions have to be present for traditional uh, hard balancing obtained through alliances and arms, uh, arms build-up to occur. First of all, states perceive the existence of a rising or hegemonic power, which, if not countervailed, will threaten their sovereign existence. Second, states find eligible allies with which to match the power of the rising or threatening state. So if you look at, at the traditional, even the classical balance of power, one of the most important reasons for balance of power is survival and maintenance of sovereign independent status of states, especially great powers. Edward Gullick ranks the number one goal of classical balance of power as to ensure survival of independent states, which is followed by objectives such as preserve the state system, no one state shall preponderate, etc. And great powers sometimes have other instrumental goals in um, in achieving, in, in pursuing balance of power strategies. Now the question is that why the United States is not balanced in this traditional way, the hard balancing. I argue that the major reason why the United States has not been balanced is that most states do not fear losing their sovereign existence because of the rise of American hegemony. Unlike previous hegemonic or rising powers, the U.S. does not appear to other states, barring, of course, a few regional challengers, as holding plans to challenge or remove their sovereign existence. Now, if you look at the military doctrines of the great powers of the system today, Japan, not Japan, Russia and China, even they now rule out a war with the United States. Their military doctrines and defense plans, although have probably have some underlying thinking of possibility for war, but clearly there is no mention. It's mostly other forms of problems they are talking about. American power seems to be constrained by a multitude of internal and external factors, and the U.S. is very much a constrained hegemon. Even when the U.S. has been pursuing the kind of... Um, imperial policies or quasi-imperial policies, there is a perception that the U.S. is a status quo power. It is defending the international order. Of course, it is creating problems in the regions, but those whom it's fighting against are the ones region are creating problems for regional orders. So it is defending regional orders to some extent. Now I'm going to come to some of the problems with that argument also later on. Now if you look at the European hegemonies, such as the Habsburgs under Charles V, Spain under Philip II, second, France under Louis XIV and Napoleon, and Germany under Wilhelm II and Hitler, they directly challenged the sovereign existence of other states, especially other great powers. Active military balancing was absolutely essential if you want to survive as a state in the European system because the great powers were land-grabbing predatory powers. 
Land was a source of much of the prosperity for great powers up until the mid-20th century. Therefore, that was the main motive of some of the European great powers, or most of the rising great powers. Direct land acquisition is no longer an absolute necessity for wealth acquisition and for obtaining the military goals of great powers, although, of course, some land in regions of oil or whatever might be useful. While the U.S. power is perceived as uncomfortable in many parts of the world, the U.S. is not considered as land-grabbing or predatory as the previous European hegemonic powers were. Today's great powers do not fear that they will be wiped out of the system or their territories forcefully taken away from by the hegemon. Now, this does not mean that the U.S. is a very benign hegemon. I am trying to paint actually very pro-U.S. position here, but the U.S. has pursued imperial policies, nothing similar to the colonial uh, powers policies, in several uh, instances. The American imperial strategy has been, in most cases, one of indirect means, largely helping to install and proper favorable regimes in strategic locations where it can control goods and commodities and also military uh, movements. The American presence in the Middle East and East Asia has imperial dimensions, but not the direct imperialism of erstwhile European colonial powers. That's why different authors have called the U.S. an informal empire, incoherent empire, inadvertent empire, imperial republic, unacknowledged empire, reluctant superpower. Others have called it what you call a soft imperialism. Now, why is that the second-ranking powers do not feel direct conquest by the U.S. is a possibility? First of all, they are assured of their existence security because they possess nuclear weapons. There I kind of differ with John also a little bit, I guess. The argument is that nuclear weapons are an insurance for uh, especially declining as well as uh, rising powers in the system. Secondly, the U.S. strategy of non-interference in secessionist movements or direct interference is very good. Washington has been careful not to intervene directly in the secessionist movements in Russia, China, and India. And because of that, states, uh, these great powers, uh, believe that their territorial integrity is not compromised by the increasing American power. Now, there is also a great understanding that permanent occupation of foreign lands is no longer feasible because of uh, nationalist groups fighting, as well as they have symmetric strategies that are difficult to combat, as we are witnessing in Iraq today. Thus, the fundamental cause of hard balancing in the past, losing sovereign existence at the hands of the hegemonic power, has become less prominent in the contemporary international order. And if you look at the European history and also the Cold War history, the biggest fear was this. The Russians feared the United States and its allies held a strategy or a plan to conquer the world or take over their territories, and the same kind of fear the Western allies had over the Soviet power. Having said this, there is subtle changes taking place, not subtle, some major changes taking place in the U.S. strategic posture since September 11th. U.S. has been talking about engaging, especially follow the national security strategy, 
of the Bush administration, engaging in preemptive wars, preventive wars. And if these doctrines are fully implemented, or implemented in, in their, whatever they say, uh, in, in its entirety, uh, these doctrines will challenge the sovereignty and territorial integrity norms in a big way. Now, if you look at the second-ranking great powers, except Britain, they are, there is an increasing worry about American unilateral, uh, unilateralist policies. They are willing to support the U.S. in its fight against Al-Qaeda or in Afghanistan, but they found the Iraq occupation or the strategy uh, an onslaught to the Westphalian sovereignty norm. So there is clearly a change taking place in the American doctrine and strategy when, when, when it comes to uh, intervention. But it is not clear that this strategy is strategic changes enough to call it going to make a major dent against this whole notion of uh, sovereign state system. The second ranking powers are not yet there to engage in hard balancing. They are concerned about American strategy. So therefore, they are follow, following certain other strategies. I would call that soft balancing. I know some people have uh, call it uh, other means diplomatic balancing. Others uh, may call it uh, constraining American power, etc. Now, balance of power theory uh, rooted in strategies such as active military alliance or arms buildup cannot explain what's going on in the contemporary world. There is clearly uh, a subtle, uh, uh, the states are pursuing subtle policies to phase American power. They are pursuing limited, tacit, or indirect balancing strategies, especially by forming diplomatic coalitions at uh, international institutions, or summit meetings, or engaging in uh, limited uh, arms buildup, or threaten to build uh, arms, etc. In order to constrain the power of the United States and the threatening behavior of the United States, these institutional and diplomatic strategies to constrain the power of the hegemon can be called soft balancing. Second tier states pursuing soft balancing attack, uh, strategies uh, also engage the United States. Um, the veto power they hold, at least uh, at the United Nations, is uh, an important instrument in their hands. But denying the UN stamp on US-led in interventions, these states hope to deny legitimacy to such policies as they perceive imperial and sovereignty limiting. Now, some conditions under which uh, this form of self-balancing can occur. The hegemonic states' power position and military behavior are growing, but they they do not pose a serious challenge to the sovereign existence of other great powers. I already mentioned that. The dominant state is a major source of public goods in both economic and security areas, which cannot be easily replaced. And the dominant state uh, cannot easily retaliate um, against these balancing uh, activities. Um, this strategy has become very attractive for second-tier states because they also realize that it is one way to influence American domestic public opinion um, and also international opinion. There is somewhat an international consensus that a collective legitimation 
of the United Nations or a multilateral reinstitution is necessary for intervention. So what they're trying to do is essentially to make the American power institution-bound and norm-bound to some extent by using these institutions and using some of the liberal ideas for essentially realist purposes. The purpose of self-balancing efforts is to make the U.S. hegemony rule-bound. They don't want to upset the U.S. hegemony, but at least to make it a constrained hegemony. They'll continue to make the hegemony a constrained one. Now, in the paper, I look at two self-balancing cases, Kosovo and Iraq. I won't go into full detail. If you, can, if you want to discuss during the Q&A, we can a little bit more and try to see whether uh, the self-balancing efforts uh, were pers uh, pursued and how effective they were. In the Kosovo instance, um, clearly there was uh, a major effort by Russia and China prior to the uh, NATO-led, uh, U.S.-led offensive in March 1999. Um, the two countries really were afraid that this intervention will set a bad precedent for their own internal uh, conflicts, Russia for Chechnya, China for Tibet, Taiwan, and Xinjiang. And there was a fear that if Kosovo succeeds, then the Western powers will not be hesitant to go into their own uh, territorial, uh, their own uh, secessionist movements. The Russians used a lot of venues the Russian NATO Founding Act partnership program, they suspended those uh, at uh, Brussels. They uh, followed uh, suspension of uh, uh, NATO's uh, plans to set up an office in Moscow. They talked about uh, potential for a military alliance with the CIS allies, uh, states, uh, and also they talked about a lot of this at the G8 meeting. Um, but the big threat was the UN forum for them. They engaged uh, simultaneously diplomatically with the United States, and there was clearly an effort by the Russians to control the events in such a way that they do not uh, pose a major uh, challenge to the, their understanding of uh, Yugoslavia's sovereignty. Similarly, China also engaged in quite a bit of uh, joint efforts with the Russians. Um, their efforts intensified uh, after the uh, attack on their... Um, uh, their, um, their embassy. Um, there were a number of things going on there at that time, the Russia-China signing an agreement, uh, especially after the uh, conflict. And there was an effort to in include India also into this uh, so-called partnership. Didn't, uh, didn't work out that all that well, although they still talk about it. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, number of things happening as a result of this particular conflict to some extent, so the soft balancing effort to some extent was coming out of that conflict, uh, was continuing. Why the soft balancing effort did not succeed in preventing uh, this intervention? Um, first of all, the Russians were really hyping this up more than what probably it was because the Allies had no plans to completely dismember Yugoslavia or to occupy the territory. It was very much a limited operation that the initial fear the U.S. would stay in Yugoslavia forever and alter the European territorial order who did not work out the way it was perceived by the Russians. The intervention did not mean the, to alter the state system in Central uh, Eastern Europe. 
or Eastern Europe, or threaten the physical security of the other great powers. The intervention did not create a powerful norm in support of secessions. In many respects, it was an intervention designed to forbid violent secession and suppression of minority, minority rights. Um, now, the other case is Iraq war, which I argue the, the, the soft balancing efforts were much more intense, and it included um, U.S. allies such as France and Germany, or NATO partners, and Russia. Uh, major activity taking place, almost six-month-long activity to make sure the, the U.S. goes to the U.N. Security Council, and that um, they were also making efforts to, if an intervention uh, takes place, it will be authorized by the U.N. Uh, Security Council. And the, the threat of veto was a very important uh, part of this um, particular uh, sort of balancing effort. Um, I won't go into the details of it. If you are interested, uh, more, more stuff will be in the paper. Um, but one thing is very clear that UN was only one arena where they perceived soft balancing. NATO was the other arena. EU was the other one. Uh, then French um, contacts with the Francophone states of Africa. Yes, um, that was another one. In the eyes of France, Russia, and Germany, and the majority of states in the international system, the American intervention posed a challenge to the Westphalian sovereignty norm, and the Bush administration's arguments were not at all convincing uh, to most of these states. And they suspected that the U.S., at least elements of the U.S. administration, holds imperial or expansionist policies, that they would continue this war uh, beyond Iraq, therefore, this was a real uh, example to make sure that won't happen. Now, if you look at the events, uh, they are very current. The opposition by these states constrained U.S. Uh, action quite a bit. It did not prevent U.S. intervention, but it made it not very legitimate action in the face of the international community. And if you look at the uh, events that took place afterwards, clearly the states pursued that much more than one even imagined in their uh, intensity over a period of time. And uh, the kind of agreement that's going on now uh, have some impact uh, because, because of these activities, had some impact in their, the outcome that we are witnessing today. Um, let me conclude by arguing that uh, in the post-Cold War period and in the post-September 11th period especially, second-tier great powers are increasingly resorting to new strategies to counter the growing power as well as the unilateralist tendencies of the United States without upsetting their economic ties. They are resorting to institutionalist and diplomatic means to balance the power of the United States. One can argue that are they succeeding, I would argue in a limited way, especially uh, on the issue of legitimacy. There are a number of policy implications that I can talk about coming out of this uh, particular discussion. Essentially, that hard balancing against the U.S. power is not automatic, as realists uh, want us to believe. And it is very much tied to the security and foreign policy uh, paths of the hegemonic state uh, is following. If the U.S. pursues its policy in a less threatening way, <coughs> and avoid, it can avoid hard balancing coalition in the near future. 
so long as the U.S. abstains from an active empire-building strategy and thereby challenging the sovereign and territorial integrity of a large number of states, especially great powers, a hard-balancing coalition is unlikely to emerge in the foreseeable future. But the overt imperial strategy as proposed by some of the Bush administration officials, uh, if it is ever implemented, it will propel hard-balancing efforts as other great powers will fear their sovereign existence and power status will be uh, compromised in a big way. If the U.S. pursues these empire-building strategies, it no longer will be a status quo power. It will become a revisionist power, bent on changing the international order built around sovereign states. The constraints on the U.S. foreign overt imperial strategy are many, but the war on terrorism and the need for oil have unleashed forces clamoring for an outward policy somewhat similar to imperialism, open imperialism. And if it is ever um, implemented in full, you will find a lot more intense conflict in the international system than what we see today. Thank you. This is not ergonomically made for a tall guy like me. Yeah, right. Can I start the questions? Uh, the, uh, let me talk about, ask you about the, to deal a little bit more with the Iraq war. I mean, you, you, uh, suppose the war had gone well, which is what the Republicans and Bush administration expected. That is to say that the Saddam Hussein was thrown out. They were able to establish fairly quickly a reasonable government, Karzai, or like in Panama, if you're Bush first. Um, they found weapons of mass destruction in considerable number, and uh, most beautiful of all for them was to find really convincing links to Al-Qaeda and so forth. Now, under those circumstances, uh, the United States would have been exuberated, I guess you could say, in the word, uh, and become a considerably bigger role because following the pattern of Richard Pearl and so forth, it was the next set of sites on God knows everything, every country east of Iceland. Um, you know, the um, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, Algeria, Libya, of course, Iran, North Korea, France, that whole group, the State Department, you know, all, all the enemies that were listed. So in that case, what would happen, you'd have the United States being very exuberant, and then you then conceivably you'd really need hard balancing. Would that, would that make sense? In some respects, the soft balancing in terms of the Iraq war is because it was a failure. So the soft balance, in some respects, is not to help, whereas there was, of course, help in Afghanistan. Uh, the soft balancing efforts took place before the war was launched. It was yes, against the through. intervention itself. If you look at the six months of diplomatic efforts of the U.N. I mean, all I can do is to make a, a hypothetical answer to your question. It all depends. As <laughs> if it was a very peaceful uh, coup operation and uh, the U.S. had... Uh, uh, succeeded in it and they found all that, perhaps that there would have been changes at the UN uh, level with respect to the legitimacy of the operation. But one thing, if you look at the, the policies of these allies, none of them has changed their policy with respect to providing peacekeeping forces. What does that tell? I mean, they're, they're still not too happy with this intervention. So I don't know whether even if the, the policies, uh, even if the intervention went well and all that happened, 
the United States still would have been looking to the United Nations in some fashion to legitimize this operation. So had balancing in that context, if the neocons won and completely going into uh, following their policies and going to Iran and all those, well, I think it, it's probably possible that you will find the Russians and the Chinese getting much more uh, intense in their activities. May not be the European states. I can see a situation if North Korea is attacked. Uh, we don't know what the Chinese would do. I mean, I, I clearly think they will have to do something. If you follow the 1950 example, they didn't, uh, nobody expected them to intervene. I mean, they intervened. Uh, the question is whether in their backyard again they would allow another form of war in the Korean context. Um, I think also one has to look at the, the time period that is needed for uh, hard balancing to emerge. I mean, in that sense, the realists may have a point. You may need 10, 15, 20 years to uh, see the kind of um, coalitions to emerge. And a continued opposition by the United States to this whole sovereignty of state system. Uh, what I'm arguing is that a lot of these um, efforts are ad hoc. They are not necessarily there is a continuous path, but they are issue-specific too. If certain issues, they need uh, coalitions, they follow that. So the behavior of great powers, or so-called great powers in the system, become much more subtle in facing the challenges they are facing in a sort of globalized uh, world order where the U.S. is definitely the dominant state. So I, I think it is premature to say what kind of intensity the, the hard balancing efforts have taken place, but certainly more than what we are witnessing today, I, I'm pretty confident that uh, further attacks on other states uh, like Iraq would probably propel much more efforts. May not materialize, succeed for various reasons, but it is likely that that will lead to the path of hard balancing, probably not uh, in the immediate vicinity, but certainly in the, in the near term. In the medium term. Um, am I controlling this? Or <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> okay. Quick question for you if we have time. I'd like to ask you uh, another one later. Um, if you don't say, if you don't mind saying your name. Because yeah. I'm Mary Ellen O'Connell. I'm a professor of law at the uh, law school here, and I'm also Thank you for um, coming. Uh, how do you assess the appointment of John, the nomination of John Bolton? to the UN, every time I think about it, I come up with two diametrically opposed strategies for appointing him, mm -hmm. um, he, uh, which goes along with you know, your, your thesis, I think. Either he's been appointed because he is the guy who thinks only the United States should have a veto mm -hmm. at the Security Council, like you said, so it's, it's more hegemony, it's more um, aggression and toward this neoconservative worldview that you just depicted as a possibility of the administration going that way, or it really is this other point of view, which some Republican senators have grasped that, you know, we'll, we'll control John Bolton and these neocons by putting him into the UN and he has to try to make this institution work and this will show America's benign uh, purposes and that we're not bent on uh, uh, this uh, Well, Bolton could be a different person when he's in the councils of the world. It's not that you can't just sit there and uh, try to control the agenda as much as there's a dynamics in conference settings, which you are aware of more than I am probably in this sense. My sense is that it is, it all depends on what the next intervention, the big U.S. 
action would be. I don't think reforming the UN is, many of the great powers would mind that up to a point. They may not want uh, the Secretary General to go away or to be, him to be fired in the manner which the U.S., uh, at least some elements of the U.S. wants. So, my sense is that Bolton may be a, a source of further self-balancing efforts if he is going to be a major defender of interventions and activism with disrespecting the UN. So, yes, I think uh, Bolton, if he pursues the way he presented before, uh, could um, raise more potential for self-balance. Diplomatic efforts by the states to form coalitions within the United States. So, but that means that you see U.S. foreign policy is going more into the negative uh, promotion of hegemony versus the institutional uh, well, I, I would I would think that people in this in this room who probably know more about the institutional and the, and the politics of the Republicans on this issue, um, I don't know whether that is happening or is it simply a, a way to uh, put these people in right places, give them more uh, you know more support and power as what they they are hoping to get. I really don't know what the, what the Bush strategy is. Certainly, he is very much um, interested in. Uh, let's say giving rewards to people who are with him, no? So there's a personal element to that. So uh, I can't, I can't see an, one individual like Bolton making a big difference at the UN or other forums. Um, we have to see how it's going to shape up in the next couple of years. So I really don't have an answer to that. I don't know the Republican. Or Bush calculation, maybe Randy knows what the Bush calculation in this regard. If ten floors disappear tomorrow, no one will know. Or there, that's the Bush position. And John Bolton will be on one of those floors. No, nobody would know or care. <laughs> one left neocon. I have a question. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, don't, I just don't know what they're. Why? I guess. Just for conceptual clarity, and as a realist, I would love to believe that there was such a thing as soft balancing, but it's, it's kind of a, it's a really poor choice of words, I think, to call what is essentially just cost-imposing strategies mm. balancing, right? I mean, because if we want to say that everything that imposes a cost on a state that you don't when they do something you don't like, is balancing, well then balance of power is still alive and well. You know, but it isn't alive and well. You know, and if you want to see balance here, there's a real simple way to do it. Go look at the military budget and have they increased. And, and for example, in Europe. In Europe, since, since Iraq, they decreased. They can talk all they want, but there's no increase in military budgets. They're not afraid of the U.S. I mean, if these states were terrified of the U.S., they would be building arms. Nothing prevents them from building arms, right? It's not like the U.S. could say, you know, we're a hegemon. Don't build arms or else we'll bash your head. We're not doing that. They, if they're afraid, they build their arms. That's their sovereign right to do it. So, you know, when we talk about soft balancing, it's almost as if you're saying they can't balance. They can't do hard balancing. So let's call whatever they do soft balancing. No, not whatever. I, you have to well, read whatever. I'm looking at two specific, specific okay. uh, behavioral patterns. One is institution, using institution. Second one is diplomacy at the summit level and, and things of that nature. It's not whatever they do. That's not enough. Well, okay. I just mean conceptually. Just, I know it's, it's not a big deal. It's not a change. Mm -hmm. I think the Iraq war is just blown out of proportion because 
you know, they're not worried, like you said, and I agree with you, existentially, they're not worried about their existence. And it doesn't matter. It's not whether we attack Iraq or Syria or Iran. It's, it's why we're doing it. They may not like unilateral. And, and so, I guess, okay, so I don't like to cost, I like, I'd rather cost closing. So I guess I'll ask you this question. Does unipolarity imply unilateralism? Does it necessarily mean Mm. Does that matter? Okay, I'll try to uh, answer, I have to think through a little bit on the second, which is a big question. Um, let me try to argue that we use terms like soft power. I mean, some people don't like that either, you know. It's a mushy term. People say, you know, why do you bother about it? You know, it's all military power or economic power that matters. <coughs> I am arguing that... Uh, Balancing can be achieved by different means. Balancing means constraining the power of the great power or hegemonic state. Now, institutional balancing is a term out there. I mean, I could have used that instead of soft balance, but then that doesn't include some one of the other. Uh, economic balancing is a term people use all the time. Checks and balances in the domestic system people use. I think it's, it's privileging the whole realist uh, position of balancing is I'm not denying that is one way to constrain a great power or a hegemonic power, but there are other means, especially in the changing international system. And I'm noticing this form of balancing taking place in many regions of the world. I was in ASEAN countries recently and talking to people in Indonesia and other places. They want China to be constrained by the institution. They know that they can build weapons at a point, they're going to stand, which they're doing, by the way. They're doing both. They're doing weapons, they're also threatening alignment, or, you know, like Singapore with India, or Japan with, uh, uh, or, or other states, U.S., etc. But simultaneously, they are trying to ingratiate or to constrain the power of China by making it a part of the uh, regional uh, institutional setups. What does that tell you? I mean, in the olden times, these techniques were really not, well, there weren't too many institutions to begin with. But as the institutions multiply, and, and China itself finds the use of institutions useful for its, its power, its, you know, to legitimize its position, to make it less threatening to other states. So institutions do serve a function, I'm seeing more and more in the regional context, to constrain the power of the hegemonic state or the rising power. And if that's happening, I mean, one can talk about imposing costs. Of course it is imposing costs. I don't want to deny we that. About, we have, like, you have no, to say that there's institutional balancing or mm. what's called binding. Mm. There's a history of that being attempted, and it failed miserably. The interwar period, I mean, that's what the British strategy. Let's, you know, enmesh Germany in a web of interdependency through mm -hmm. institutions, multilateralism, and they just opted out. And so, but I mean, hard balancing. It's, it's just sneaky. I, I mean, I'm not, let, I'm let, not let, saying let, you're doing anything nefarious. No, I'm but not. I mean, it's, just, it's just, you know, the idea that institutional binding, which we know doesn't work, I mean, you still have to first make the case that there's such a thing as institutional binding, not just the notion of it. I know states want to believe in it. I know weak powers want to believe in it. But show me some proof that it works against big powers. But even if you believe that, it's still binding. It's not balancing. Yeah, I, you know, the problem with that is I, I present that in the paper also that the, the hard balancing also need not work. Balancing, you're now looking at balancing as an outcome versus balancing as a strategy. 
balancing as a strategy does not mean it's go everything is going to succeed. All you can say whether efforts were made, the strategy included some of these uh, techniques to constrain the power of the uh, of the state. And if you do that on a consistent basis, at least on specific issues, I do think the Iraqi war, the, the, the second tier powers were successful in constraining American behavior to some extent. Okay, I'm not saying fully. They couldn't prevent intervention. They wouldn't have been preventing intervention. But as long as the hegemonic power is interested in institution, as long as it is a liberal hegemony, let me put it that way, as long as it worries about legitimacy, as long as the American people worry about legitimacy of its action, institution is a great way to go. I think it helps them to build their, their position to the rest of the world. I think the European system has changed quite a bit of the pre-World War uh, or, or, or the Cold War system. There are fundamental changes taking place in the world, and how do you achieve security in this complex world. That's where I think these different strategies come into come into the picture. I don't I don't agree with you if you say that we have to believe only these two only the, the realist balancing is the only balancing out there. I mean it's, it's probably a matter of how you put it. If you have a better term, that's fine, but it's clearly a cost imposing can be anything, no? I mean the asymmetric uh, I don't know, the, the, the insurgents doing certain things. I mean, I, call, I could call that an asymmetric kind of... Turkey not letting us use their territory. But Turkey is not a great power. Turkey was, once upon a time, something similar. Turkey has no veto power. Turkey cannot impose the kind of cost that uh, Russia or France or China can. Turkey cannot delegitimize the American efforts as, as the great powers can. I think... Take my word for this, you will find much more of these kind of behavior in the next 30 years in the international system than the kind of hard balancing we are talking about. It's just not, the cost is the big problem. It's not worth it, you know. <laughs> and you're not seeing the kind, until your existential security is threatened. That's where I think, of course, China is uh, concerned there. But clearly, the U.S. strategy matters. I think manual balancing is more important than automatic balancing. That's, I don't know, I think you probably you agree with on that part, manual balancing part, maybe, maybe not. No, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, you know, if you have another term, I will be very happy, but I'm not willing to take any course, imposing any courses, one way to call it a soft balance. I would, I, you know, I, I have narrowed it down to a couple of key ways to... Uh, uh, including this particular concept. I, I mean, well, that's well, a matter well, of preference. I, I wouldn't think we'll spend too much on that, that subject. Well, one solution would be to get rid of the word balancing entirely and call it all cost imposing. So if you build up your arms, you're increasing the cost. You can hard balance it, but you're increasing the cost. The well, hard balancing, there's clearly two dominant, there are other strategies in hard balancing too. The two dominant are arms build up and alliance, alignment formation. If you do the war, it's going to be more costly than it was before you did that stuff. Yeah. War is the other. Preventive war is the other uh, strategy. I think the difference is between uh, brute force and, and coercion. And cost imposing implies coercion, whereas balancing implies brute force. You're not going to let this stuff. You're not bargaining. Well, you, they, they try to do this because of cost. Um, let, me, let me try to... Uh, I come to the point, 
does uh, unipolarity imply uh, uh, unilateralism, you say? First of all, we never had a unipolar system in the world before probably the, I guess the Roman Empire was the closest, but even then the Roman Empire was very confined to certain geographical regions of the world, no? And today's system, I wouldn't call it unipolar. That's why I call it near unipolar. It's unipolar in some sense, but it's a very constrained power. I mean, you know, it's not like it can go and do whatever it wants. It needs support. It needs uh, sympathy. It needs public opinion, casualty sensitivity. The previous great powers didn't have to worry a whole lot about that stuff. They could, the British could send their troops and a certain number would die and you won't even hear about it until uh, six months when the news will reach London. No, even then it's not a big issue. But I think that you look at the United States today, it's a constrained unipolar system. You know, it's not even a unipolar system. And it is transforming in the regions. I mean, I mean it depends on how you would uh, call it. I mean, in terms of raw power indicators, the U.S. has this dominance but can it achieve its goals in the different parts of the world? Um, just today, the Indians and the Pakistanis have agreed to set up a gas pipeline connecting Iran uh, to India. And the U.S. has been very opposed to that. They're saying we are going to, we are going to do it. I don't know that they will do it or not. <laughs> what can the U.S. do? I mean, the U.S. needs Pakistan, the U.S. needs India to fight terrorism. There may be some economic sanctions, but there is only so much U.S. can do with in, in those contexts. I don't see um, the unipolarity that we are talking about. And it, and it is going to change as, we, as China modernizes and, and builds up its systems and other regional centers uh, increase their capabilities. The U.S. Uh, unipolarity or whatever you see is pretty, uh, maybe a 20, 30 year period. I think the system is transforming into something something different, so, I don't know, if you get a unipolar system, a true unipolar system, yes, you might find much more intervention, and that's uh, probably not going to happen, at least from my vantage point. Yes, Rick? Actually, my question is exactly following along with you now discussing, hmm. which is the sort of practical approach to power, and I, I'm resistant to this uh, Broad conception of unipolar and bipolar, and within America it can do whatever it likes. I mean, from a practical perspective, I couldn't imagine why China would want to do more uh, to confront the United States. In the sense that we're not, we're not capable. It's a fantasy uh, to think that the United States has the capability to compel retreat on the part of Russia or China, or that we did compel retreat on the part of Russia or China. I mean, this, this is, a, I think, an American fantasy about how the Cold War ended, the amount of power we're possessing. We can invade countries like Afghanistan, nobody cares about, doesn't have an army, doesn't have a regularized defense force, and it's a small population to begin with, and it's still not sorted out three years later. Iraq, as John said, is a, is a more difficult challenge. The countries we're talking like Iran uh, are hugely more complicated. I mean,
or could do. I, mean, I just don't see how we translate this putative advantage into some uh, dimensions of power that we count as academics. Well, the actual the diplomatic leverage. I think Taiwan is the case. Taiwan is a case where U.S. can, US can do a lot. Um, if, if there is a, for instance, a, a declaration of independence by the Taiwanese, and the Chinese react, following the U.S. Uh, agreement with Taiwan, there has to be an intervention. I think that's the Chinese know that's a major, uh, major potential source of conflict. I don't think the Chinese take that as at all as a, a totally low probable occurrence. If you look at the weapons they're buying today, the kind of things they're doing, very much centered on Taiwan. And they know that the United States can increase the capability of Taiwan by giving it all kinds of weapons, F-16, etc. It is not probably direct intervention, but a certain kind of warfare in the South China Sea could be, if it happens, it can happen. I mean, it's not totally well, I'm impossible. I'm not denying that there are, are threats. What I'm suggesting is that if we would go out to Hawaii and talk to the leaders of PACOM about their estimates of how easy it would be to liberate Taiwan or mm. defeat China, and that this is something they're raring to do, uh, this is just fantasy here among us academics. Well, I don't think I disagree with you. If you look at my argument, it's basically the U.S. cannot uh, or does not have that ability or the inclination to do at this point. It doesn't mean that the great powers are completely sanguine about the possibility. For instance, if there is a foolproof, well, that's a big question of national missile defense. And none of them has any ability to combat that, which is again not happening. But clearly, technological marvels could take place that will give the U.S. a considerable advantage. Technology change in the human history like that, certainly. I mean, that's not totally impossible. The Chinese, um, I wouldn't call the Chinese that are worried about American policies, probably not direct intervention. I mean, and that's, I clearly state. They're the ones that call the hyperpowers, right? Academics that made up the term hyperpower was the leaders of China and France. And Governments are allowed to have rhetoric. But I don't think what we can do with Cuba, but we tell the Chinese what they can do with Taiwan. I think the U.S. can do chalking certain sea lanes, making it impossible for the Chinese to get oil through the Malacca Straits. The U.S. can uh, close the Persian Gulf at least for a period of time. The Chinese don't have a navy, <laughs> sufficient navy to, to make that uh, impossible. Now, only in the context of nuclear weapons, of course, the Chinese have 20 ICBMs today, and which they're going to go to 40 or 60 in another 10 years, 10 years. I think Chinese are waiting. They're on a period of what you call, they know that they need the wealth, and they are expecting confrontation with the United States, probably not in a direct military confrontation, but they are not completely ruling that out. They are using words like peaceful rise a lot, to make sure the neighbors don't get, get threatened, you know. The neighbors are the big problem for China and to some extent for India, to some extent. If China builds up a big army, it's not just the U.S. going to be worried. The neighbors, the ASEAN, the Korea, the Japan, will be uh, very, very concerned. And what does that mean? The Chinese are very clever at this point. They're following Sun Tzu. Lilo, Lilo, when you can, don't go for a frontal attack. 
perhaps you can conquer without a war. I think they may take over quite a bit of the world's financial economic system in the next 20 years using that strategy. So war is not inevitable in the Chinese way of thinking, at least using Sun Tzu, but they are prepared for that. They know Taiwan is a potential area. And uh, I do think that they are ruling out war in all their doctrines and everything I have seen. It's, it's very clear that they are not, um, but that doesn't mean that they are taking insurance policy. I mean, why do, why do they build all the nuclear weapons? The Russians are building a lot more new stuff now. Insurance is what they're worth. I mean, essentially, you can't trust. I mean, this is the realist problem, you know, that tomorrow things could change. Also, they want to have some hard power with them if they want to be called great powers. If they don't have that, you know, why, will, why would the United States pay any attention? If the, if, if the Russians don't have any nuclear weapons, somebody said, will they get any respect? Very little. I mean, that's... Russia's 18,000 the, the idea that they it's are the starting power is <laughs> <laughs> my point is that they don't have capability, and my point is that they understand they do have capability, and they know it's sufficient. For the time being, at least. Until the next technology. China is taking over half the economic capital of the world, as you just said. We really could close the straits of Hormuz for months on end. I'm, the more I read about the U.S. strategy with China, I'm getting scarier. Every time I'm getting really scarier on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. You, you, you are sitting in. You are sitting in this. You are sitting in this beautiful part of uh, Midwest, but the strategic thinkers are talking about the coming war. I don't know. I mean, I, you should talk to Christopher Lane. This is the guy who, who is my source of information on this. Anyway, I mean, I, yes, Ted. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm getting really. This is the problem of me conducting this. Uh, Talk a little bit more about you know, how you see stocks and how balance related. 
seems to me that bargaining doesn't always lead to a hard balancing. It seems to me that a lot of that hard balancing can go on without any talk at all about any soft balancing. Um, and so I guess my worry with a concept like it is just, I mean, it could distract a realist from focusing on the real things that matter. It could distract really, which I don't mind actually. <laughs> yeah. But but and then also, um, unfortunately, of course, since the neglect from the other work that's being done, like the bargaining, you know, mm. Well, I mean, a certain amount of bargaining is involved in any strategic interaction situation. I mean, go to shelling. I mean, you know, this is clear that uh, UN is the forum of bargaining. But if you follow a strategy with a particular idea of preventing something and expecting actually cause, so the French were expecting some real punishment too. I mean, the wines were, you know, prohibited from coming to the United States. And what else would give them in return? I don't think uh, uh, the French would have been happy with this uh, complete uh, free trade to you, you know. That is not clearly what they are asking for. There is bargaining, but there is much deeper level of political power going on here, which is essentially to constrain the behavior of the United States, which I don't, I mean, it's a bargaining too, but I, I don't, I don't think it is simple everyday bargaining. It's intense activity. It is not uh, simple uh, diplomats sitting and chatting. It is threatening to certain kind of behavior if you don't do certain kind of thing, which to me is, it's more than the kind of bargaining diplomat, I mean, uh, you know, people who are institutions. I mean, I have no disagreement or difficulty if you want to include that term bargaining here, but it's, it, it has to be uh, it has to be specific purpose, which is essentially constraining the power of the hegemon, which is a balance. Like the shilling, coercion, the difference between coercion and brute force, that coercion is a bargaining situation. Mm -hmm. That attempts to constrain or coerce or, you know. And so okay, here the instrument is different. There it is nuclear weapons or whatever. Here it is um, institutional power. Uh, you're not going to be convinced, Randy. So. Well, I think that's a very dangerous term to say. Shelling, how many context shelling is applicable in today's world? It's cost-imposing. We have the term. Yeah, but the kind, of, the, the, the kind of cost that shelling is talking about is totally uh, inappropriate. Is there a different cost to these things? The difference between punishment and denial, balancing and cost. Anyway, I would, I would uh, argue that there is no harm in looking at different cost-inducing or punishment-inducing mechanisms, but the purpose is clearly uh, very, very significant here. Uh, what was the second? Uh, the relationship between hard balancing and soft balancing. I can see they can go together sometimes. I mean, if the, I guess the league of nations or concertism. I don't know. I haven't done much enough work the pre-period, uh, the pre-Cold War period to argue that. But clearly institutions can be part of the uh, mix of things, I mean, for, uh, for uh, uh, these kind of purposes. But here I'm arguing that this could be the, the you know, uh, interval period we are witnessing today in the international system that it could evolve into hard balancing. It all depends on the strategy, a great, to a great extent, the strategy of the hegemonic power. So I think it is, it is one way to deal with power dynamics in the system, a transforming system, especially by uh, declining great powers and the rising great powers uh, to some extent in this so-called uh, near unipolar system. So 
Um, I don't. I don't think it is um, unrelated, but it could be a step below the kind of thing that we always talk about. I think I, I want to hear Ted. Uh, Please. I raised my hand directly to Jennifer. Oh. Well, on that, on that totally unexpected. <laughs> 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 Let's uh, thank TV. Thank you. 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 Thank you